House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Oh, welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren, Mr. Martino. Yes, playing, present. Playing, playing pool. <laughs> playing pool? Aren't you playing pool? Am I? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing something. You got pool sticks and Oh, oh, you're talking about the uh Kali and Eskrima. Oh, is that what that, that is? Yes, yes, yeah. Oh, I yeah, there's no Q stick and uh, eight ball oh, or anything like that. No. no. I don't even know what those words are you just said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that districts in LA? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's martial arts. <laughs> Martial arts. Filipino martial arts. <laughs> wow. So you're, you're becoming... So you're taking over... What's his face? You're that... Uh, oh, geez, you know. Guy that went to Russia. You're taking his place. Who? Uh, you know... Um, oh, 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 Steven Seagal? Yeah. That's Aikido. That's Aikido. Yeah, but you're you're still taking his place. You're going to be doing I all am. the shows and movies and everything. Yeah, they'll pick you. Okay. That's yeah. how sure. Yeah. Because, you know... I could do some DTV uh, uh, movies. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> be a star, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today is Friday, and we are going into the horror, the horror world. And uh, we have to go all the way to the UK because <laughs> there's no <laughs> horror in the States. We know that. <laughs> it's all it's all roses. Um, so let's welcome Stephanie Ellis to the show. Hello, and I'm actually in Wales in the UK, in Wrexham, although I've yet to see either of the local um, football stars who took over the club from your side of the world, but there we go. And I don't play pool or do Aikido, so I'm quite safe. Oh, <laughs> that's too bad. Um, well, you know, Dave, Dave plays alone. <laughs> anyway, well, Stephanie, you have written a ton of books here. Like I, I look through, and wow, um, where do you get where do you get the energy to do all this? I don't know. People keep saying I'm prolific and that I've written a lot, but it is actually the culmination of quite a few years of writing. I keep thinking, I still think of myself as being very new to the genre, and I started getting stories published back in. 2013, 2014. I wasn't really doing much before that. Um, that was when I took it seriously. And bizarrely, I think it's this concept of time flying as you get older. So that's what makes me think I'm still new. But a lot of what I've written was done during that time. But it's when it gets published, it all seems to be at the same time. So it looks as though it's all happening at once. But the ideas I just get from what I, I see around me. I mean, some of the short stories that I've done, I've based, I've used characters that you, you hear about people in the news that have done something wrong and they never seem to get their comeuppance. And I, I was talking, I was thinking about this on an interview the other week about who I used and why. And I think it was, it's a way of getting control back over life a little bit by all those people who seem to step out of line. You think, oh, they've got away with it. You can actually put those characters in your stories and you can get them, you know, they can have their, their bit of punishment and good usually overcomes evil. But I will say some of my stories don't always have happy endings whenever anyone's asked me to write uh, a horror story with a bit of hope at the end. I failed dismally on, on those counts. 
So you're really punishing people you don't like. A, a little bit, yes. <laughs> but also, also to have a bit of fun as well, you know. It's, some of the characters I write, especially in the folk horror, they're, they're bad, but they're likable in a really bizarre sort of way, or at least a few of them are. And I, I do tend to have more fun writing the villains, probably because I'm the sort of person <laughs> that that doesn't like to break the rules or do anything wrong in life. I've, I've always been the one who sort of follows everything and doesn't like to get into trouble. I mean, my, my previous job before I stopped to, to focus on the writing was as a librarian. And, you know, the kids would come in and they'd talk to me and I'd say I'd write, oh, what do you write this? And it'd be old horror. And then be, what music do you listen to? Oh, death metal, industrial metal, you know, all that sort of thing. And it's totally the opposite to what people expect. So I do like to subvert expectations a little bit. People make assumptions when you look at somebody, um, but they're not always like that. So I do like to challenge that a little bit to show that you don't have to dress a certain way to be regarded as one sort of person. You can just be yourself and just surprise people a bit. Do you, do you ever have an issue writing evil people or getting into the minds of someone that would be pretty uh pretty nasty no because i, I like <laughs> i'd like to see how what they can get away with before somebody tries to stop them but i also i mean there's some characters in um reborn my latest novel which is a folk horror sequel to the five turns of the wheel and there are these three characters tommy betty and fiddler and fiddler always plays a violin and because they're like a little theatrical mama's troupe based on sort of traditional roles and Betty is the man who dresses up as a woman for comedic effect, and Tommy is the one who organises it. But they're the ones who, who make people suffer, but I've given them a sense of humour as well. And <laughs> by doing that, you can sort of chuckle along with them as they, they, they go about their business and bring mayhem to everybody else's life. It, it's just, I'd like to write it with a little bit of a smile on my face. I don't take it too seriously. I want it to be a good story. And people say, what themes do you talk about? And yes, there are themes in there which come through as I write, not because I plan them. But overall, I would just like to be a good storyteller. And the feedback so far has been that I tend to achieve that for those who like my books, because I know not everybody does. Write, reading is subjective. So, but uh, yeah, I make them a little bit human, a little bit likable, have a bit of fun. Well, talking about uh, folk horror, I was wondering... How much do you draw off of um, mythology and folk tales, and how much of what you do is imagination? Uh, it's it's a split, really. I mean, the, the idea for the three of the Mummers troupe it came from the Wicker Man, the original one. I haven't watched the remake. My eldest keeps telling me I should, but I refuse. The first, I think, is it nineteen seventy three one? That's classic. That's the one I stick to. They had the uh, parade where you would have the uh, hobby horse punch, the half man, half woman. And I liked those particular aspects that I could draw. I wanted to bring those into my stories because they looked quite horrific, even though if you look at old photos of villages and events in during May, during the summer months or the winter months, they'd be dressed up with masks and everything. It's supposed to be fun, but they looked quite frightening. So I brought that into it. And I also saw that a lot of the, the folk horror movies or books, they tended to fix on just one particular aspect of ritual. It's always a bonfire. Someone always gets burned. And I wanted to develop other rituals that would 
feel folkloric in effect. And so the ones in five turns I made up myself, but in Reborn, I've actually gone into um, earlier mythology more on the Nordic side with the Norse. Um, there's there's a ritual at the end, which I'm not going to give away, but it is actually based on sort of old Viking um, rituals. So I've been digging a bit more into ancient history a little bit on this one, and I do want to go further. Uh, some years ago, and it's still ongoing, I did my family history and <laughs> traced it back through the Normans because there was a Norman name, I traced it back, and that took me into the Vikings. So I've got that sort of ancestry. And to me, I, I love reading the stories, but it's a way of getting in touch with those distant roots and just enjoying the stories and bringing some of it back to the modern day. I don't like the idea of things being lost in time. I think old stories, old traditions, even if you're not necessarily going to reenact them now, I hope people don't. Um, not, not, you know, realistically anyway. Um, I hope that they're brought back and people can enjoy them again or at least go back to the original writings. And I have been buying up other books on Celtic mythology, um, digging around to see what I can use in the future. So, yeah, I really do like history and I like to dig around in the past and see what I can bring in to um, sort of modern stories. I've got a, a short story that's coming out later this year. I've I think it's called Lure and Legend is the, the anthology from Encyclopolis Publications. I might have got that wrong. I can't, I can't get the name of the publisher right. But I've used an old Norse story in there where it, it features on this person or this creature that's in Valhalla that's eaten by the warriors every night and then is reborn the next day to be eaten again. But I've sort of transferred that into the human world. So I do like to dig around as I say, and find myths that I can use and twist a little bit into a more modern setting. Your your newest series, like this book here, like The Reborn, and you said this is the follow-up to the, uh, the Five Turns of the yeah. Wheel. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. What's the what's kind of the premise of, the, of this book? Well, in, in The Five Turns of the Wheel, which is, I'm going to say it's partly based on my my childhood in a way, because there's there's a pub in there called the Five Turns, and I, I was brought up for well from the age of eight to seventeen in a pub called the Cider House in the middle of nowhere. So I've used that element within the story, but there, alongside this area of the English countryside called the Weld, is a parallel world of Umbra, and it's it's sort of just well not quite visible, but it's there. And these creatures are sort of human, sort of not, but they. They survive by feeding on the blood and the flesh of those who live in the world. But those people are kept in that place and they can't go beyond its borders without without permission. But it was a bargain that was struck so that they would their villages would thrive and the people, the Umbrans, would actually survive at the same time. But one of the rituals involved um, the loss of an unborn child. And the main character in that, Megan, who features in both books, she fights against that ritual, um, although she eventually loses loses her child. But she wants to put a stop because it always seems to be the women who suffer, whether it's the whether it's a mother or a young girl or the grandmother. They're they're all drawn into the rituals, and yes, some men get harmed along the way. But it's very much about keeping the women in place. But those who control it, Tommy, Betty, Fiddler, and their father, Huel, who's the Lord of Umbra. They say that it's in the name of the mother, Mother Nature. 
um, but they've become too cruel. So Megan puts a stop to it. That's a bit of a spoiler for five turns. But in doing so, she loses her husband, but his spirit resides in this sword that they use for ritual. I will say that in Reborn, although it's her journey to try and get her husband's spirit freed and maybe reborn, and it's also the story of the, the other three, that I have put in points throughout the story. So it's not done heavily, but it drops in a little bit of what was in Five Turns so that you never actually lose the thread. So because Megan, at the end of Five Turns, was put in charge of Umbra, she stopped a lot of the rituals. And those folk, if they don't have the blood, if they don't have the flesh, then they start to weaken. And so you've got Tommy, Betty and Fiddler. They're all getting weak and they're all getting really annoyed that she is keeping them in their place. And so they leave at the start of Reborn and they go on this journey to find, um, apologise to their mother and also to discover their father who is also being reborn. And he is, I always say the name wrong, uh, Sanunos or Sanunos, the horned god. He rises again. So it's a bit like a family reunion, but it's a quest in a way. You've got Megan trying to get her husband back. You've got the three who are trying to get their strength back and to get Mother Nature to give them their place back in, in the scheme of things. So they're all going to this one place to see who will come out on top. Will the three be destroyed forever? Will Megan release her husband and who they meet along the way? That's very much the premise of the story. It's more of a quest than a journey with ritual at either end rather than the five turns, which was based on each turn of the wheel was a specific ritual. But that is also referenced in Reborn, so it shouldn't confuse people too much, I hope. When you write um, something like this, where there's a couple of parts to it, did you have that in mind when you were first writing five, the five turns? Was this sort of something that you knew would take a couple of books, or did it come up afterwards? It came up as I was writing because... As I wrote the story, it's very much from Megan's point and from it, it was very much Tommy's story as well. There was also the character of Betty, the one who wears the dress and is supposed to be the comedian. But in the five turns of the wheel, you see that he's very much an animal. He's very much a child of nature. And I wanted to tell his story to work out why he was exactly what he was, because I had a lot of fun with him. He is brutal. He will kill without even thinking about it. And there's a certain innocence about him as well. He's not one given to a lot of thought. And it is because he is this child of nature. And I wanted to address the idea of the monster, because who is to say some, sometimes what is a monster? We don't like him, but he was made that way by Mother Nature. It's a bit like I, I don't like wasps, I don't like snakes, but does that mean... We destroy all the, the things that we don't like because we think they're monstrous in some way. I mean, there are a lot of monsters in human life as well, you know, in, in our lives that we see. And this particular one, Betty, he is a monster, but I want people to think, can we blame him for what he does or not? He is what he was made. I mean, you can't, in today's society, if you said that about some people, you, you do have to proceed with caution because otherwise all sorts would be walking the streets but again it's just a thing for somebody to, to think about when they're, when they're reading 
Yeah. Well, you know, monsters in humans are always running for politics. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're always in government, right? Yeah, we don't talk about politics over here. We've been through so many prime ministers lately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the drive through isn't it? It so, is. Blink and you've well, got least, another one. <laughs> well, at least you can get rid of them. We're stuck with ours. It <laughs> uh, seems like forever. Do you consider um, this a horror or a fantasy then? I always sort of get this confused because I don't know what to call something. Is this kind of a, how would, which one would you put it under? Uh, I think it sort of straddles both. Uh, when I wrote it, I called it a folk horror. Then someone else called it a literary horror. Then someone else said it was a dark fantasy. And I think on the whole, I would say that it's um, folk horror with dark fantasy elements in it. And it seems to be, I think that seems to fit it perfectly um, because of those made up elements in there. But I think the horror in there is sufficient and the actual rituals and where it's set, it has all the elements of folk horror. So it's a combination for me. So it sounds like you also have something that you want people to get out of this um, story besides the entertainment, the horror, the fantasy parts of it, the darkness. There's some sort of an underlying theme here or something that you want a reader to take away. Is this true? Uh in a way, and again, that was something that came out. It, it's all about balance. I, yeah, I go on a little bit in the, I don't go on, but I introduce the idea of nature in both the books as having its cruel aspects. And having grown up in the countryside and seeing how people would treat it when they came out to the pub at the weekends, we would get lots of visitors from nearby cities, even though we were miles from anywhere. We were quite well known in the Midlands. And you, they would come out and they don't treat the countryside in the in the right way. They don't treat it with respect. And there's a lot of that still. We've got a right to roam. I don't know what it's like in the US, but there's lots of public footpaths and bridleways that have been around for hundreds of years here. And it goes across private land, but those paths are for us to walk. But you get people champing over them and they leave the paths and they have their picnics and they leave their rubbish and they let their dogs off the leads, which the animals but they don't seem to think anything of it they forget that it's a working environment and that it can't all be nice and pretty like some sort of theme park it's it's a place where nature is cruel where foxes will rip lambs or chickens apart i remember there was a time when my dad came came home and he said that the neighbor who's our neighbor was half a mile down the road their chick, the chickens in their shed, they'd all been killed by, by a fox. And there's, there's all those sorts of aspects that will have nature's call. It's, it's not pretty. And whilst there are things in the countryside that needed to be changed, um, you know, how farmers treat their animals, which we've got very good standards over here now. So I, I think there might still be some way to go, but there has to be a balance. There's a balance in all things. You can't wipe out the cruelty of nature. And to think you can is is wrong, but you've also got to try and put things right where they are wrong. You know, like with the, the hunting, where you would go after a fox with a pack of hounds and it would be ripped to pieces. That was wrong. But as I say, there has to be a balance. And I, I would rather that people talked their differences through rather than say, oh, this is right and you're wrong. Um, it, just, it seems to be these days you might have something like the Countryside Alliance 
talking about one thing and then you've got those from the towns and cities saying, well, this has to be done. But there's a militantism that seems to come in these days. And I don't like that. I wish people would talk the, the issues through on whatever aspect it is, because I think if people are rigid in their, their views, then that breeds resentment and anger on the part of the others to oppose those views. And then you'll never get people to talk to each other. Um, but it, so it's, it's very much about balance, about thinking things through. Um, you probably won't see that in the book, but that's that's my idea that there is this balance in the world. You can't wipe everything out completely. I would love cruelty to be gone. I, I would love us to have a utopian society where we're all treated equally, but it never happens and we strive for it. And I think we should, but we need to be realistic about how we go about it and how we do that. So when you read my books, yeah, there's this idea of balance. It's done in a different way, but that's something that concerns me very much these days. And so uh, you put some comedy or humor in this. Do you, do you have to be careful on where and how much you do? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's only a little bit. It might be a quip here or there. I mean, in Reborn, I've got um, John Keats appearing because they do go to Winchester uh, we lived down in Southampton about, until about a year and a half ago, and we'd go up to Winchester occasionally. And I didn't realise, but Keats went round Winchester. He did half the. There's a there's a walk you can do around the city, and he did half of it. So I, I've introduced him as being one who sort of got along with the three, Tommy, Betty, and Fiddler back in the day. It shows how old they are. They are ancient creatures, and it sort of plays around with the words. I think it was from ode to autumn or something and i just used the line in there about oozings and it's just the idea of a keats line mm -hmm. coming into uh, an episode where they might have actually been eating or feeding off humans and drinking their blood it's just it just made me chuckle so i put, mm -hmm. I put that in so anything little subtle mm -hmm. little things nothing slapstick in it but just the odd comment that could raise a smile well, do, do you think when um, you do put humor into your book, do, do you think there needs to be kind of like with stand-up comedians, there needs to be like a, a sense of comedic timing? Is there a sense of timing or flow that needs to happen to, to make prose uh, uh, comical? I, I think so. I, I, as I say, I don't do it heavy-handed, and I only do it sort of a couple of times throughout a, a longer novel, but it's just to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, it if it did, if it didn't, it just comes out naturally. If that didn't, if it wasn't natural, I could tell and it would be too forced. So I wouldn't include it. But it just seemed to be that there was at this point, it just, it was just felt like a perfectly natural thing to do and have a little bit of humour in there and to give a little bit of relief to those who are reading. Because sometimes you can read a horror book and it can be relentless. So I like to sort of change the mood up a little bit occasionally in what I write. So uh, how do you experience your characters? And I ask this of a lot of writers that do fiction. Are you are you seeing them in your head? Do you see it like a movie? Do you hear voices? Like where, how do you um, interact with your characters? I watch them. I, 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 when the story starts, it's usually from a character and they'll just appear in my head and it's it's all very visual. And then it's right. What are you going to do? And then it is a movie in my head. Like when I read, it's a movie in my head. The words vanish. And when I write, 
I'm there visualizing and they might be walking down a road and then it's I'm just behind their eyes watching, seeing, hearing. And it is very much that way. Do your characters ever take over? Like you have a, an idea of where the story is going and then the character says, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going uh, in a different direction. I never know where my stories <laughs> No, I never know where my stories are going because I do not plot or outline. I am a complete pantser. I'll get this sort of vague idea of something or somebody and they'll be, they'll be doing something. I thought, oh, that's a good idea. And then they're off. And as soon as they're walking and looking around and interacting with people, they're bringing the story to me. I can't outline. I, I think I tried it once at the start of my writing and I'd watched or read all these other authors' ideas of how they did it. And they would have their little character cards and everything. And I just found it too restrictive because my characters would keep going off and doing their own thing. So I do not outline. I keep meaning to write little character cards occasionally to remind me what they look like because I might forget what their um, eye colour is or something, you know, or what their second name might be or get them muddled up. But then I'll just do a search on the document. But it is complete dancing all the way through. I would say that it's usually by about two, the story gets written to about two thirds. And at the two thirds point, it will show me where the ending is going to be. And then I know how to proceed to that point. The start is often I'll write a paragraph maybe two or three times before I get it right. And then that paragraph will lead me into the rest of the book. That's about 30,000 words. I'm usually thinking, oh, this is a load of rubbish. I'll put it down. But then I I carry on and keep going. I'm working on one at the moment and I'm about 54,000 words into it. And I am aiming for 100,000 if I can, because I want it to be a big doorstop of a book. Everybody says, oh, it's novellas are the thing these days. And I have written a couple of novellas. Mm-hmm. I've read a number of novellas. But for me, that I love to read a really thick book and just lose myself in them. Uh, the Stand by Stephen King. I've got Chuck Wendig's Wanderers, and I've just pre-ordered his latest, uh, Alan Moore's Jerusalem. Uh, there, there's a whole load. If, if I want to lose myself, I, I just get a really thick book and just hide away for a few days and just disappear into that world because a good story just takes you away from where you are and you are somewhere else completely. And I hope people find that with my writing as well. So I would imagine that um, you're not an outliner and you're kind of going by the seat of your pants, as they say. Then, then. Um, Emotion and mood and surroundings will affect on how you write. So like when you're sitting at home, if there's, a, you know, something on your mind or something stressful happening or you got a water leak in the house or something, but when something something's going on, does it sort of interfere with your writing? Not really. I've learned to sort of dissociate myself from things around me. I will say if I'm having an extremely tough time in my life, whether it's health or family, that the real stress is um, at the extreme end, then that's a time I can't write and I can't read a book. I know I'm in a bad way if I can't read a book. Um, but much of my writing, especially in the early years, my kids are all young adults now. They've all just finished uni. And I used to sit on the corner of a sofa in our front room with my notebook and I'd be writing there with things going on around me with the kids 
asking questions or playing or what have you. So I learned to write in, you know, in, in quite a, a, a noisy environment. I mean, now I've actually got a desk in the corner of the bedroom with the shelves and things. And it's a proper workspace and I can work here. But I find that sometimes I just need to pick up a notebook, go back downstairs to the living room where people are and just sit in the corner. And then I can start to write. So occasionally I do need things to go on around me. But I have used my writing to work through a few things. I mean, in the five turns, the wheel, there's a part in there that involves a miscarriage. And I'm being quite open about that now. It's over 20 years ago I had it. But I brought it into the story and the wording, if people read the words of the doctors and everything that happened then, I remember my editor, he said, you can't write that. Nobody would say something like that. And I said, well, they did. They said it to me. And I didn't realize how angry I was about the way I was treated then because it wasn't a good experience. It's quite a violent experience. And I put it in the book and it helped me sort of work through it a little bit. Although it's, it still makes me angry to think about it now, but I wanted to show people that, you know, you, you can get through these things and you can use your writing, uh, to, to help you work through something that you hadn't really addressed for some time. Because I know that a, a lot of women with families, you, you put your family first and anything that really affects you, you tend to internalize, but you don't always deal with it at the time and it can take a few years. Down the line, in my case, quite a long time before I thought about it and thought, yeah, that wasn't good at all. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how things affect us and how it comes out in in our work or art, you know, so to speak, and and writing. Um, how was the pandemic? You must have been writing this book through the bulk of what was going on and with all the craziness, you know, and well, you know, because the way people act and then react it and, and all the tension and stuff going on outside of your door and the lockdown and all this stuff. Reborn was written just before, I think it's just before the pandemic or partly through, I was finishing it up. It was going to another publisher and that's the publisher that it was, all the work was going to folded and then it's, Bridges Gate, I've just picked it up. At the time of the pandemic, I was actually working. I was, as I say, I was a librarian. I was also a teaching assistant, and I specialised in literacy for those who had difficulties. And I was, I was teaching a lot of teenagers to read, basically. And during the pandemic, I think I was off work when we were told, right, stay home. I was off work for a couple of weeks when the school closed, and then I was back in um, I was setting up a new library and then I was supervising kids in classrooms. So I worked throughout lockdown pretty much. And part of the decision for me to stop my job at the time and to sort of focus on my writing full time with the support of my husband, who's working to support us. Um, and the move helped us get rid of a mortgage so I could do that. It was just I couldn't do that job anymore because of the, the stresses that it involved. So Reborn had been pretty much finished at that point, but I was writing. I was actually doing a collaboration, um, a poetry book. It's a novella in poet form called Lilith Rising, and it's about Lilith coming back and getting a revenge on man. And I, I was actually working on it with Shane Douglas' team, and he's over in America. So during that time, we were batting poems backwards and forwards to create this book and that's recently come out 
So it didn't stop me writing. It allowed me time to actually read and to carry on working. But it was the stress of COVID just slowed it down a little bit. Um, seeing, I think sometimes the hardest part was going into work and seeing everyone else have a lie-in or, you know, in the house, they would all be asleep and I'd go off to work and then come mm-hmm. back. And it would be very difficult at work as well. And you're put in positions which you shouldn't have been in at times either. So it's, it is quite difficult. But now I've got the time to write and I'm finding that harder that you've got the time to write. Whereas before I'd squash it in. When you know you've only got a little bit of time to write, that, that time to write, that pushes you to actually get on and do it. But now I'll sit there and I'll think, yeah, I'll do this, but then I'll go off and get a cup of tea and I'll do something else as well and then I'll come back to it. And it is harder to discipline yourself when you don't have those other constraints on your time. Right. So I have to be strict. Yeah. Yeah, it's something about pressure that you get used to and then without it, it's, yeah, I know. Yeah. Do you ever take these, yeah. these bad people that you've met in your life and, and put them as characters in your book, you know, kill them, make them suffer? I haven't that I haven't not necessarily it may be that if I go back and read some of my stories I will see some of them in there in some of the short stories I put in certain types of people that I get uh, fed up with seeing being you know getting away with all sorts I think there's a short story I wrote years ago and there were loan sharks and people who took advantage of others and People like that who always seem to get away with things. Well, they didn't in my story. Um, in five turns, I have got some of my dad's customers, our, our regulars in there, but they are disguised and they're, they're harmless anyway. So they haven't really caused any trouble. Although I will say that Betty, the one that I sort of explore his character, his physical appearance is a bit like one of our old regulars. It was him who I, I thought of when I sort of describe him, but this man's behavior and everything is nothing like in the book he was a gentle soul he was a really nice bloke but you know nothing like in the book well i was wondering in, in your poetry do you use a specific structure or is it um a free form kind of kind of the same way you you write your your prose fiction it's it's very much free form um although i have got into haiku as well i think what one thing I really love is found poetry. And I did a collection, I keep saying last year, but it must be this year. I'm losing all track of time at the moment called Foundlings. And I wrote it with Cindy O'Quinn. Um, and we took the poetry of Linda D. Addison and Alessandro Manzetti. Uh, we took their poetry and we created new poems from that. And then we created from poems found poems from those poems as well. And we got Linda and Alessandro to write the foreword to the book. And they, they really like the poems. It is completely original po- poetry, so it's not um, copied or, or anything. You know, there's no plagiarism involved. We just created a new element, and I wrote some haiku in that. But those were very much free form apart from the haiku. Then I wrote, I did a collection. This was a, a labour of love called Metallurgy. And that is based on one poem is the tracks from two songs. And it was all my metal favourites. <laughs> You'd find Behemoth and Slipknot mm-hmm. and The Cult and all sorts of tracks, Nine Inch Nails. And I'd be reading the, the lyrics and then trying to create poems from that. 
And that was quite hard because then you realise that um, maybe heavy metal songs and things aren't the things to write poetry from. So if you think it's a long poem, it's repeated and repeated and you can't find anything original to say. But I did it and I created a Spotify list for that as well. And then Lilith Rising was actually very much a freeform um, style of writing. And I say mine and Shane's, it just seemed to gel together. We're working on something else at the moment, which again is going to be a sort of novella and poetry form. And this is for a publisher. But uh, there is partly freeform, but then it's also sonnets. And when it comes to structure, I'm there counting my syllables on my fingers and trying to get it right. And these that were like in Eugene O'Nagin, uh, I'd never read that before. So I looked it up and I've got the, the form there. So I am, it's a mixture of free and sonnet. And I also did a found sonnet in um, Shakespeare Unleashed, which is coming out with Crystal Lake Publishing, I think next year at some point. So I used Shakespeare's King John and created a found poem from that. So I do like found poetry because it's very much a puzzle. So if people like puzzles and their writers, I would recommend it as a great exercise because you just you've got the words there, you've just got to create that image. But generally I do like the free verse size because when I look at structure and syllable countings and all all the words and the forms, it just goes over my head. It's it's something that's comes naturally to me to write freely rather than to be held in that way. I don't know what if it's because I'm a pantser as well when it comes to the novels and short stories and fiction, that sort of thing, but it's just the way I am. It's interesting. Well, I, I'm wondering, too, um, how did you get into metal? I know uh, I got into metal, like, in the 80s. A friend uh, introduced me, I think, to, I think it was at Metallica at the time, but um, I'm just wondering how you um, got into uh, uh, metal itself as a musical genre and then how it has um, maybe influenced uh, some of your longer works. Oh, well, well back in the day, um, in the sort of late 70s when I was in my early teens, I was into punk as in the British sort of version. And I didn't listen to too much metal. I did listen to Motorhead and, and a few others. And then I would say my early 20s, I, I left home and met some friends and they were into metal and they shared tapes with me. And they introduced me to all sorts of bands and I just started listening from there. So that's where I picked up Metallica, um, The Cult, uh, bands like that and I'd start to go to see them but it's it's only been in recent years I've actually been able to go to concerts and to festivals because when you got a young where, where I first lived we were in the middle of nowhere so you couldn't get to the festivals and I couldn't afford it couldn't go to gigs either because they were too far away and then when I had family again couldn't afford it but I, I remember that by that time I was listening to like Ramstein and Behemoth and all sorts of Kerrang on um on telly, I used to watch that a lot, and there was this panel called Stars, and they'd have all these metal bands on there, and I really liked those. And I remember there was, I just about had enough money at one point, I can't remember how old the kids were, they'd grown up a bit, and I said to my husband, oh, I really want to go to see Ramstein, and so we went to see them, and it cost a little bit, but after that, I'd seen the cult about three times, I see Metallica at Reading, uh, Nine Inch Nails, my eldest I've seen them a couple of times. My eldest bought me a ticket to their concert when I was 50, so that was my 50th present. Uh, I go to Bloodstock when we can if there's a headliner there. I, I just really like um, the energy of the music and the sort of rough edges to it. When I'm writing, sometimes people say, oh, you can't have music on when you're writing because the lyrics distract you. But I listen to a lot of, uh, might be Finnish or 
any sort of Scandinavian band and the German bands as well, when they're singing in their own languages, you don't really understand what they're going to say. So it it doesn't it doesn't affect your writing in any way, but it does help me set the mood um, of a piece. I've got um, the Woodcutters coming out next year with Bridges Gate Press. It's not in the Five Turns world, but is a folk horror. And there's a bit where the, this person's in the wood and it's a really sort of grim atmosphere. And to get into that sort of mindset, that mood with that little bit of anger, I had Behemoth's version of The Cure on a loop as I wrote the scene. So it kept that mood going and music will take me to those places that I need to be to write, to write some of those scenes. But yeah, we're we're all metal fans in this in this family. We do have Pike, but my eldest especially is one who will come to gigs with me. Although I was a little bit miffed a few years ago, and she took my youngest daughter to see Corn and Slipknot with her. She didn't take me, but I did get to see Slipknot just before COVID. They were one of the last last bands I saw before lockdown. It was Slipknot headlining with Behemoth supporting, so I was happy. <laughs> Well, so if if someone hadn't uh, heard of you before, they haven't read anything of yours, um, which one book would you suggest that they they pick up? Much as I love Reborn, and I do prefer it in a way to The Five Turns of the Wheel, I would say The Five Turns of the Wheel, because that is very much me. It's my, it shows how I bring atmosphere and mood and all the senses into my writing it's also got a bit of me and my life in there that's why I say five turns more than reborn because five turns has my childhood in that in a certain area of England and the rural aspects of it so and I just had such fun with it and then go on to reborn after that so I I would say those if you like folk horror if you want to experience something uh something that could affect humans at some point and you want a quick read, I would say Pause is a good little action novella if they like that. And that is a condition, it's based on the condition of locked-in syndrome. I don't know whether you've sort of come across that, where the body's shut down, but the person is still alert, they're still conscious. And this happens to people all over the world. They just suddenly freeze and they're aware of everything around them, but they can't react. So how would you feel if you're crossing a train track and you suddenly froze and your body wouldn't respond and that train's coming towards you or you were on a walk on the beach and your body froze and the tide's coming in? So there's elements of that. But five turns is is the one that um, I would recommend. Mm. Okay. So now um, do you do um, social media? Do you like to interact with readers? Do you have a website? How do people get a hold of Stephanie Ellis? Uh, right, I do have a website. It's stephanieellis. Uh, Stephanie Ellis. There's no space in there. I'm on Twitter at lstv, and what's well, el underscore stevie. And you'll also find me on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm also over at horrortree.com, uh, where I do the weekly indie bookshelf releases and help out behind the scenes. I used to be an editor of the zine there, but uh, I will give a shout out to Horror Tree because there's so many resources for horror writers there. And if any other writers are listening to this and they've got a book coming out soon, they can just send me a link and I'll put it on the bookshelf and help promote them as well. So I strongly believe that, yeah, we're on social media to promote ourselves, but we're also there to help others along the way. Because otherwise I'd have no books to read. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, what do you, what what interests you? What are you reading these days? Um, is there is there something, and especially is there stuff that are 
maybe outside the genre, like outside of fantasy and horror, do you read other things that? I, I do, I do. It seemed to be that for a while, if you were a horror writer, you couldn't admit to reading other stuff. But I do read quite widely. Um, a weakness I have is um, for Richard Osman. He's a presenter over here, and he's, he pre- he presented a, a quiz show that we used to watch. Um, called Pointless and also the House of Games that we still watch. And he's written these sort of cosy mysteries about uh, geriatrics living in an old people's complex and they go out and solve murders and things. <laughs> I've read those. Uh, it's the Thursday Murder Club and the books that follow on from that. They're really good. Uh, I'm also reading a lot about the English Civil War at the moment, a lot of non-fiction, because the book that I'm writing, The, the Women of the Witch Eye, is set in 1649. And so I'm reading about the war in Lancashire where I had ancestors and I'm also bringing in religion of that time because my ancestors were the first Quakers in that area. So I've got family names sprinkled in the book. I'm reading a lot of that. And there's also bits of poetry that I've been picking up. So, yeah, it's quite quite wide in terms of my reading. There's there's a lot of, say, non-fiction at the moment. So, so I get my facts right for the, the latest book because it does take a lot of research. I was going to say, that must take a lot of research then, and you're spending it um, doing that and going through a lot of um, history and stuff like that. Because I think it's really important that um, that people do get that right. Because for myself, um, the worst thing in the world is reading a book or watching a show, and it's dealing with something using history, and they don't have it right. Or another thing that really bothers me is when they have the wrong the wrong language, like they're speaking 2020 rather than 1800, for instance. They say different things that are wrong, and that drives me nuts. It, you know, it takes me out of it. So uh, how long does it take you to do one of these? I want to say this is the first. I did write a very short, I did, wrote a short story um, set at the same time some years ago, and it took a little bit of research. But I'm going into this in quite de- a lot of depth because I've been writing it for about three or four months now uh, with some breaks because we just moved house. So there's been a lot of upheaval, but I've sort of intermingled the writing and the, and the reading. But I mean, I had an obsession over trying to find out what people ate at the time because I was going through the day with some of these people. Did they have breakfast at a normal time? What we regard as normal. No, it was usually later. And then I was looking up online and people said, Oh, they'd have toast. And I thought, and it didn't have toast back then. So I've got a book now which has a chapter on food and says basically it's bread and cheese and a bit of cottage. <laughs> but it's, it's little things like that that I want to get right because I know that some people, well, I've, I've read a lot of history. I do like, I would actually recommend C.J. Sansom's books. He's written Matthew Shardlake series. They're like detective series set during the time of Henry VIII. Um, they are very, very good. And his attention to de- detail, it's like Bernard Cornwell as well who wrote Sharp, and he did a, a Viking series that I really love. But he, the, the, the detail in there, it doesn't pull you out, whereas if you get something wrong, like you say, it takes you out of the story. So I'm trying to put it in into the story, but not in a heavy-handed way, just enough to show that I know what I'm talking about. Because the other side is also trying to get the dialogue right. Like you say, you've got to keep people reading, so you can't be completely in the language of the time but nor can you use modern phrases, um, you know, for in the in those books either. You just have to get the balance right. But I do like it because I've always had a weakness for history. 
it was my favourite subject at school and I wanted to take it further. But my dad said, well, are you going to be a history teacher? But years later, I did a degree at home. I did it with the Open University and history was the subject that I studied then. So I was able to just pick up books and, and read and, and fill in a lot of the gaps that uh, had been there before. And it's where I found my interest in the sort of civil wars of this country, a time of upheaval, a bit like now, all sorts of ideas coming through and challenges to authority. So it's it's a good time to write about. So, But it will be a bit dark. I've got witchcraft and superstition and things in there as well. But I'm having a lot of fun with it. You do try to stick to the common um ideas of what witchcraft is like when you do something like that i've i've got some books uh, i've looked i've looked it up but i i want it to be there as in how they viewed it at the time i mean people would just make wild accusations a lot of the time and say oh they said this or did that and I, i've got a few of the supposed spells and things but it it's not all spells and charms it's just how things appear to go wrong and they would blame the old woman who lived down the road. So it's got that sort of unfairness to it. Um, I've used a bit of the pen. I don't know where over if you've heard of the Pendle Witch Trials that happened in this country in the early part of the 17th century. Um, these women were hanged in Lancaster and one of their accusers was the daughter of one of the women um, who was hanged and she was about nine at the time. And then years later, in the 1930s, she was accused again of being a witch by a lad who'd who'd accused her just to deflect attention from himself because he'd failed to do some job or other for his dad. And so I've got that particular woman who's sort of survived. Well, she accused once. She was accused herself. And now she's older and she's in this particular story. So I'm, I'm digging up the old records and seeing... Um, transcripts of what happened in the original trials and trying to make it a bit more realistic. It's not going to be looming over a cauldron muttering spells or anything like that. This has certainly been a great conversation and we're glad you came on the show. And now uh, the latest book is called Reborn and our guest is the author of that, Stephanie Ellis. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been great. <laughs> Thanks, Stephanie. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.